You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I did a little traveling this week, not to Russia, but uh, my youngest son Holden and I went to my brother's house in Southern California. Holden loves to travel, loves being on a plane, wants to sit by the window so he can just take it all in. And so on Tuesday, we're, we're taking off out of the Austin airport, we're up in the air, Holden's face just, you know, glued to the window, kind of hit me like this. I'm on, I'm on my phone doing, like, super important stuff, and he's just, you know, like this, and I'm, whatever I'm doing there. Finally, he just turns around, and he says, Dad, just look out the window every now and then. And uh, it was the phrase every now and then that got me. You know, because he's not saying drop everything and do this and only this and always this. He's just saying, Dad, we're flying through the air and you can see it. There's a big world out there. Just take a look out the window every now and then. And immediately I just thought, wow, what a picture of what happens in our lives. Like we're all walking around with these big questions just lingering in our soul. Like, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? Big questions. And most of us usually try to find answers to those questions by looking in, which can can look a lot of different ways. It can be a hyper-focus on our work, just doing important stuff on our phone. It can be a hyper-focus on our need for control or comfort. It might show up in anxiety. It can be a hyper-focus on pleasure. One of the ways that we look for answers is by self-discovery, And so, you know, we take all the tests and get all the input, schedule plenty of me time and do all of that. And that all is fine in and of itself, but none of those things by themselves can answer the big questions. And so over and over, the Bible is saying, hey, lift your eyes, shift your focus on God. Consider the wondrous works that he has done. Look at his glorious grace and behold him. The Bible's saying, hey, just look out the window every now and then. And you know when kids are looking out the window because you hear them. Right? They're, they're over there. They're saying, they can't help it. They're like, wow, look at that. Look at that. That's awesome. And they're, they're grabbing you and they're telling you all about the things that they're seeing because they want you to see what they're seeing. When a kid is looking out the window of an airplane, you know what happens? Just praise comes forth. He can't help it. And I, I don't know about you, but I feel, I felt in that moment even, a deep lack of praise in my life. Not enough praise in my life. And I can only reason it's because there's not enough looking at God, not enough beholding his glory in my life. That's the main reason I'm excited about beginning our series in Ephesians this fall. And today we're just looking at the opening section. And from the very beginning, Ephesians shifts our focus to God. Look how Paul begins this in verse 3. If you have it, open up to Ephesians 1. We're we're looking at verses 3 through 14, but this is how he begins. Blessed be the God. So blessed is just a word for praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
It's like Paul is looking out the window at God's glorious grace and the praise begins before he even gets going. Praise God for all the things that he's done for us. Wow. I mean, look at it. And then he goes on to describe it. Two main things in verse 3. There's the, the God who blesses us, and then there's the blessings that we receive. And it's not a few blessings. It's, it's, it's an embarrassment of blessings. It's, it's every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So there's the God who blesses and the blessings that we receive. We're going to spend three weeks in these 11 verses. Uh, the next two weeks, we're going to look at specific blessings that we've received in Christ that God has given us. But today, we're just going to focus on that first part, on the one who blesses us. What does this passage tell us about God? What can we see about him? The main thing this passage tells us about God is that God has a plan. And if you look down in verse 10, you'll see it right there. A plan for the fullness of time. That's a big plan. And you see that language all throughout. So if you just look in verse 5, at the end of that, you might see a little phrase that says, according to the purpose of his will. That phrase occurs three times. Again, in 11, it says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this word purpose just means choice, benevolence, uh, satisfaction, delight, pleasure. It's all wrapped up in there. When it talks about God's will, it, it means what one has determined shall be. When it talks about his counsel, that's actually the word that we get uh, our blueprint from. God has a blueprint. God has a plan, and he's going to make it happen. And the main reason Paul's telling us about all this is because he thinks, he knows, that if we will see the plan in all of its grandeur, praise will come forth. We won't be able to help it. And so that's our aim today. We just want to praise God for his great plan. And we're going to look at it in three parts. One is we want to praise God for choosing us. We want to praise God for giving us choices. And we want to praise God for working all that together according to his plan. All right, so let's start with praising God for choosing us. Verse four. Even as he chose us, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So when Paul looks out the window, He sees into eternity past, and he sees God there, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, choosing a people for himself. And in verse 5, he uses the word predestined, uh, and these ideas are related. And so, in eternity, God chooses a people for himself, and then he determines, predestines, to make that happen by adopting those people as his sons and daughters into his family. I, uh, I grew up playing lots of neighborhood games with kids around the neighborhood. And so I know exactly, I'm well acquainted with that terrifying moment when teams are being chosen. And there's only two ways that can go, right? If you're good at the game, you get chosen and you feel great about yourself. If you're not good at the game, you do not get chosen or you get chosen last and you feel terrible about yourself. That's the only way it can go. Choosing 
in neighborhood games and in most of life, sadly, is about merit. Are you good at it or not good at it? That's going to determine whether or not you're chosen. God's choosing is not like that at all. It's not based on merit at all. And you know this because he did it before the foundation of the world, before we did anything good or anything bad. If it's about merit, then you'll be full of pride. You'll feel great about yourself. Or, if you're not good enough to be chosen, you'll be full of shame. You'll feel terrible about yourself. But God's choosing is not by merit, it's by grace. And grace fills us up not with pride and not with shame, but with praise to our great God. The Bible is so explicit about this. In Deuteronomy 7, this is what uh, God says to Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he chose you. I'm feeling pretty good about myself if I'm Israel, except verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your father. It has nothing to do with you. God loves you because he loves you. He chose you because he chose you. In Ephesians 2, Paul will say, we're saved by grace, through faith, not by works, not by merit. It's a gift of God so that nobody will go around boasting, feeling like they're better than other people. The Bible is explicit over and over, and it's supposed to fill us with praise. And so this is where our story begins. Not when we placed our faith in Jesus, not even when we were born. Our story begins in eternity when God the Father gave a people to his Son. John Frame, a really smart theologian, says this, God chose a people for himself before they were created. They existed only as God's ideas, but of course they weren't mere ideas God had already planned to create them and give them lives in history. But even as God's ideas, Frame says, they were objects of his love. And and some of you, many of you are like, okay, but how could that be? There might be a really good place for the how question, but this isn't it. Paul is not really asking the how question at all. He's not concerned with how, Paul is consumed with who, and this is who. Isaiah 46. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purposes. Paul is looking out the window at this great big God, and he is saying, whoa, look, it's glorious. You know, Paul wrote this letter to encourage the people, the Christians living in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus was a tough place. It was a major city where Christianity was mocked by the intellectual elite. Uh, It was challenged and opposed by the surrounding culture. I I think Ephesus was a really hard place to follow Jesus. 
And these people, these are people that just lost steam from time to time, as we all do. And so Paul's writing to encourage them and to strengthen them. And and this is what he tells them to do. Lift your eyes. Praise God for choosing us before the foundation of the world. You know, in uh, 20 years of ministry, I've had, I don't know how many thousands of just conversations with people. And never, not once, in any of those conversations, when I've asked somebody, how are you doing, have they replied, you know, I'm just feeling so encouraged by the doctrine of predestination lately. I mean, just warm fuzzies all over. It's never happened once. Now, the conversation has come up a lot, but it's always because there's tension. It's always because it's a point of struggle and confusion. But for Paul, it's a source of confidence. Because Paul's not focused on the logic of God's choosing of predestination. He's focused on the fact of it. God chose us, he says, according to the purpose of his will. That's how. And that word purpose, again, has in it the meaning of delight and satisfaction. And so to these Christians who are struggling, who are growing weary, Paul's saying, I, I get it. I know it's hard. But listen, I want to tell you something. God is thoroughly happy about his plans for you. Everything's going great. In, uh, in Romans 8, it's another place where Paul is trying to encourage and strengthen Christians. He says that nothing, like not anything, would ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. What an amazing truth. We love that truth. But why can Paul say that with such confidence? It's because of the verses that come just before that. This is what comes just before it. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's the adoption language. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And Paul, out the window, is just seeing the whole scope of redemption. And that launches him into Romans 9 through 11, which kind of gets to some of the how and why. That's the lengthiest explanation in the scriptures I know of that deals with this topic. And so after Paul works through all of that, proving his case, he ends up at the end of chapter 11. Class is over, and what does he say at the end of 11? That's how it works. There you go. Stop bugging your pastor about this. That's not what he says. This is what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who here has been his counselor or given him a gift that we might be repaid? For from him and through him And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. See, the conversation about God's choosing for Paul erupts in praise. Do you see Paul's humility 
When Paul got saved, literally had an appearance, Jesus appeared to him, chose him. Paul went into hiding for like 14 years and studied and had unique revelation from God. So I'm just saying, Paul knows more about God than we do, right? And he's more humble than we are. Paul's saying, look, I want to know everything about God I can. I press in, I study, I pray. But when I come to the edge of what I know and what I can know, I don't stand back and say, nope, not going there until somebody explains it to me. Not at all. Paul says, when I come to the edge of what I know, I back up so I can get a running start and I jump in head first. I dive into the riches and the grace and the knowledge and the glory of God. And I swim around in what I can't see and I delight in what is unseen. I glory in what I can't figure out because it means God is God and I'm not. I'm so glad that I can't give him something that he would then owe me. I'm so glad that I don't have it all figured out because what would God be if I could have it all figured out? And Paul says, when I get to that place, that is when I am most aware of the fact that this world and God's plan is not primarily about me. It's about him and his glory. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's how the conversation goes for Paul. That's the point of Ephesians 1. I want to show you something. This little phrase, to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace, actually marks the sections in these verses from 3 to 14. And so in verses 4 through 6, you see that God chooses us to be holy and blameless and he predestines us for adoption. Why? Verse 6. To the praise of his glory. Verse 11. God, because God has predestined us, we have an inheritance in Christ. Why? To the praise of his glory. Verse 13 and 14, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance. Why did God do that? To the praise of his glorious grace. I, uh, I had a conversation just a few weeks ago with a guy in our church. I won't name him, but his name's Jackson Crowley. And, um, and we were talking about this like, actual topic. Just like, what is going on with election and stuff? And that, that was our conversation. And, you know, it's an interesting conversation. There's tension around it. I think we all have friends who are really struggling with that and, and doubting God because of it. And, you know, so we talked about it, and it's interesting. But you know where he and I got to? You know, we don't know. We don't know. But we do trust our great God because he knows. He has a plan. God is not asking you to figure this all out. He's asking you to trust him and to celebrate his grace in your life. And I think that might be a moment of truth for some of us. Like, can we submit ourselves to the God who is? Can we lay down our control, our need to know, our anxiety about how it all works out? Can we put all that down and just look out the window and say, wow, what a great big God we have. That's what it means to praise God for choosing us. Now, that raises an obvious question about our will to choose. That's here too. Let's look at it. 
And it's here because it brings praise to God. So verses three through six deal with or describe God's dealing with us in eternity. And when you get to verses seven through 10, we're looking at Christ's redemption in history, in time. And we're going to look more specifically at that next week. But what I want you to see here today is that God's eternal plans come through to us through historical events. And these historical events, namely the the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, call us to make choices. They call us to repent and to believe in Him. So here's, here's the flow in Ephesians 1. In eternity, God chooses us to be holy and blameless. In time, in history, God sends His Son Jesus to redeem us so that in Him we could have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And God brought us in on that plan. Verse 9 says that he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the full That's a lot of words, but it's just saying God, God brought us in on things. And we believed in Jesus. That's our part in the plan. We believe and we keep believing. Uh, we looked at that verse in Colossians 2 where Paul says, just as you received Christ, so walk in him. How'd you receive him? By grace through faith. And so how do you walk in him? Keep believing. Look what Paul says in verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him. That's our part. God gives us choices and calls us to believe in him. And so we see that God's eternal plans come to bear in time through real circumstances and real personal faith in Christ. That just raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Well, which is it? Does God choose us or do we have choices? Are we, are we predestined or are we free? I don't know if you've seen the uh, documentary Three Identical Strangers. You probably should tonight. Um, I won't give it away. But the question that's, that's raised in that film is, what forms us as people, like as children especially? Is it nature or nurture? And some of the parents watching the film want the answer to be nurture because like, they've read all the books and worked really hard and they want all the stuff they've been doing to really matter. And I'm different. I was hoping the whole time, I hope the answer is nature because then it's not my fault. You know, people are like, What's wrong with your kid? I don't know. Ask grandma. Genes and stuff. But of course, it's both. And, and holding these things together actually is what makes you a good parent because you have an appropriate sense of responsibility to you know, pay attention to your kids and to pour your life into them. But you also have an appropriate sense of your limitations You just can't make them whatever you want them to be. They sort of have a personality, a design, a bent. And a good parent knows how to parent going along with the grain of who that kid is, how to nurture along the grain of their nature. The same kind of thing is true with this question about God's will and our will. Are are we predestined or are we free? Both. The answer in Ephesians is both. In Ephesians 1, he's saying, 
God chose us to be holy and blameless in love. But when you get to Ephesians 4, Paul is pleading with us to put on holiness and to walk in love. He's saying, use all the energy you've got to choose this because this is life. So we're to live our lives in a manner worthy of our calling, of God's choosing of us. It's, It's both. And the Bible over and over gives us this wonderful balance of both. And I don't personally know of anything else that rings truer to this question than what the Bible says. It's both. And holding on to both of them gives us an appropriate sense of our responsibility to pursue God, to get wisdom, to put on holiness, to walk in love. And it gives us an appropriate sense of our limitations. That, we can't, that life just isn't whatever we make it. That's so American. That's so individualistic and consumeristic. Life is what you make it. Make it yours. No, that's not true. You have circumstances and, and genes, for one thing, that prohibit you from being whatever you want to be. But also, God is at work through your circumstances and through your, your family to bring about his purposes in your life. You're responsible. But you're not independently free to do whatever or be whoever you want to be. And that's a good thing. God has saved me from so many things that I wanted to be. Praise God for that. This helps us see how to make choices in our life that go along with the grain of God's plans. Here's how you do it. Aim your choices at godliness, at holiness and love. Because that's God's purpose for you, to make you holy and blameless in love. And so how do you choose along the grain of his purposes? Aim your choices at that. That's what he's doing. Like, when someone lets you in on a plan, it's not just FYI. It's, it's to bring you on board. It's to align you to what's going so that you might begin to direct your life toward that end. That's why God brings us in on the plan so that we can get on board with his purposes. I had dinner recently with, with a couple, just a great couple, raising a kid, doing their best to walk with God, sincere hearts, and just several times through the dinner, she was like, you know, I just keep feeling like I'm supposed to have some big, greater purpose in life. She's like, is there something I'm supposed to be doing? Am I missing something? Because her whole life right now is just diapers and stuff. I'm like, I think, I think maybe the most glorious thing going on in your life is the diapers. I think that probably more than anything else is bringing you to holiness and love. Here's the great purpose. God purposes your holiness. Aim your choices at that. You know why I love that? Because anybody can do it. Anybody can pursue holiness. You don't have to have a certain income or social circle or any kind of circumstance. You can pursue holiness in the worst of times. In fact, that's actually the best place to form holiness and love in your life. I like the goal of holiness because it's not really competitive. Your holiness does not inhibit my holiness at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. I think the more the merrier in this goal. I like the goal of holiness because it takes away the pressure to do and be all the other things. Like, it, this, is, this is a real true story. A few weeks ago, I was feeling so overwhelmed by just all the things I don't have. Right? 
the money I don't have, the, I won't say the job I don't have because that would be weird for you right now, but the cars I don't have, whatever it is, all the th- I was just seeing super overwhelmed and it hit me like lightning. Is God overwhelmed by these things, by me not having these things? And the answer was an immediate no. I was like, well, then what's God thinking about? And the answer is my holiness. And it just was so freeing. I, I can pursue holiness right now without all that other stuff. No pressure. Now, more important than all the reasons I like the goal of holiness is God's reason for the goal of holiness. I'll give you one guess what God's reason is for giving us choices to pursue holiness. To the praise of his glorious grace. You got it. That's why. Your holiness, our love for one another, it leads to the praise of God's glory and grace. Praise God for choosing us. Praise God for giving us choices. And here's the last thing. Praise God for working out all of that so that it always goes according to plan. Uh, Tim Keller says this. The Bible says your choices matter. You're responsible. You're free to make choices that have consequences. But at the same time, God uses all our free choices in such a way that his power bears on them so that everything that is freely chosen only works into a perfect plan. And everything that happens fits into that plan. Resist the how. Just just appreciate that for what it is. God works it all out so that it goes according to plan. Verse 10. This, I think, is the key verse. This is where he says, God set forth in Christ a plan for the fullness of time, which is to say, God's going somewhere with this. God made plans in eternity. He brought us in on the plans in our lives, in history, so that we could believe in Jesus. And then Paul says, this has a trajectory. The picture is, um, it's like of a great captain steering a ship through the, through the ocean. He is, he is navigating the waters, he's charting a course, and he's taking into account all of the things and willing the ship to a destination. That's what Paul's saying. God is at the helm. God is moving history along in a way that will defeat evil, in a way that will bring justice, in a way that will redeem a people for himself who will praise him for all eternity. More. Paul says the plan is, verse 10, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. I think for the sake of time, let me just try to paraphrase it this way. Uh, We learn in middle school that everything in its natural state is going from like order to disorder, and that's that's a pretty good way to think about what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying things on earth, our bodies, our relationships, our social and political structures, everything is coming apart. Everything is moving away from God's design. And not only that, but also things in the spiritual realm. Ephesians alerts us to a spiritual realm at war. Paul says, when we used to walk according to the course of the world, and then he says, you know, following the prince of the power of air. Wait, what? Who's that? What's going on here? And then in, verse, in chapter 6, he closes the letter this way by telling us, there is our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. 
It's against principalities and powers and dark forces. And so things in the spiritual realm are in chaos. They're moving apart from God's design. And there's disunity between the things of heaven and the things of earth, which isn't how it's supposed to be. The vision in Revelation is that heaven and earth are are made new and they're one. That's why Jesus says, you, you should pray that God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's all of this chaos and all this moving to disorder and things moving apart from one another. And Paul is saying, hey, at the end of time, in the fullness of time, God's going to bring it all together in Christ. Everything in heaven, everything on earth will be united and submitted to King Jesus. That's where the story's going. This is our inheritance, that new world. And in verse 13, Paul says, in verse 14, he says, this inheritance is guaranteed until we acquire it, until it is ours for real. How, how is it guaranteed? Because we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Why? To the praise of his glory. When that day comes, when all things are united in Christ and we are sitting around, you know what we're going to be doing? praising the glory and the grace of God. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.